Hello, welcome to the future. I'm your host, Chris Doe. And joining me as always is Aaron Zakelli and Cheryl Stevens. Today in the hot seat is Matthew Encina. And Matthew is a pretty interesting guy. He came back from a talk recently. I'm going to let him introduce himself in just a little bit. But first, I want to kind of set up the, the conversation, the topic of what we're going to discuss today. And conventional wisdom would state that if you went to school to a four-year program and you studied hard and you did your best, that when you graduated, your kind of career path would be set for you. And you get wonderful things by going to school. You, you learn about who you are. It's about self-discovery, about learning what you like and dislike and figuring out what you want to do in your life. But that's conventional wisdom and we live in the real world. And many of us who pursued a creative path, it wasn't so clear. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. What do you do after you get out of school? Where do you go? How do you find what it is you love? And how do you succeed at that? Hey guys, you're probably wondering, why is Chris and company on Facebook Live all the time? Well, we're recording another podcast. And today we're going to be talking about career paths. And specifically, we're going to talk about how do you know you're on the right path? Many of us went to school and conventional wisdom would say, and this is what your parents would tell you, that if you go to a four-year program, you get a college degree, you're going to have a head start in life and you're going to not only find out about who you are, what you're good at, but you're going to have a career and it's going to be a long, sustainable career. And that isn't always the case. Who's joining me today? Today to my right is Aaron Zakelli and Cheryl Stevens, as always, but in the hot seat is Blind Creative Director, Matthew Encina. So Matthew, introduce yourself to the people. I'm going to flip the camera around. Yo, what's up? <laughs> Glad to be here for the first time. Yeah, I mean, I'm a creative director here at Blind. I've been here as a creative director for about almost six years now. But our paths, me and Chris, we crossed actually a long, long time ago. Back in 2006, I uh, took Don't try his... to make me sound <laughs> older than I am. Come on, man. Hey, Petrula made me feel old earlier this week. So pass it on. I see how it works. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to make myself feel younger. Anyway, our paths crossed in 2006. I had the pleasure of taking your class at Art Center. And then after that, I asked if I could intern here at Blind uh, in late 2006. I interned for you. After I graduated, I was the, the cocky hotshot that I was coming out of Art Center. Times were great. You know, it was 2007. Work was just falling in our lap. So me and my college buddies, we all decided to start our own company, which we called it Born. And then we ran that company from 2007 to 2009. Problem was, in 2008, Everyone knows what happened. The housing market. No, no, no. Occurred. Hold on. What happened? Everybody, think for a minute. Think for a minute. Where you were when the entire financial market and the banking world was on the brink of collapse, implosion, mm -hmm. where Apple stock was at some rock bottom. Right. This incredible fall. Right. People were running around as if their hair was on fire. People were jumping out of buildings. Did you guys remember seeing that? Really? Oh yeah. Yeah. They were committing suicide because they had been wiped out financially. Just remember that. Does anybody have a story to tell? Aaron, you were in the financial world. Did you have anything you want to say on this? I honestly don't remember it being such a dramatic thing. <laughs> oh my gosh. Wait, where were you, Aaron? Were you in high school? Uh, yeah, I was in high school, so it was okay. just another day for why, me. Why are you turning so red? Because <laughs> you had no money, you had no it's future. Like I already didn't have any money, so I still don't so have any no money. Different. Yeah, so it was much. not a big change. Right. Down here Forget you then. All right. Everybody else that was alive and aware and sentient. No, actually, I was with the company and they actually had gone through their um, crisis a couple years earlier. So we were just like, oh, <laughs> more cuts. Seriously, we were already at the, at the bones. Skin oh, you're bones. bracing. Yeah, we were already waiting for the pink we, slip. We were already down. Yeah. We got hit like in around 2006. You were waiting for George Clooney to come and deliver the bad news. <laughs> yeah, right? we, 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 were, we were about, we were, we were yeah, we had our issues earlier so we yeah. just kind of kept rolling with the punches okay you know what matthew your story reminds me a little bit of yo santoso's story where mm -hmm. she started fruit mm -hmm. at the beginning of the recession right so it'll test everybody i, I don't think there were many businesses that were surviving uh, or could get out unscathed through that kind of financial meltdown but our story is not really about the financial meltdown it's really no. about your career path so i'm going to Right. Take you back there. Yeah, so back there, 2007, things were really great. Economy was awesome. And so we decided to start our own company because uh, work was just falling in our lap through word of mouth. All the people working in the motion industry, I knew they were you know, living really well. They were getting paid really well. So I was like, oh, 
I'm gonna get into that and I want to build that for myself so we could you know get the most uh, fruit from our labor so we started our company then the housing market crashed and eventually I kind of figured out all the things that I didn't know about running a business so how to get work when there was no work coming how to deal with all the legal issues well that's a big thing mm-hmm. a lot of people think it's wonderful it's glamorous start a business be your own boss it's, right. it sounds really good right be your own boss it's almost like printed in big bold extra bold futura right be your own <laughs> boss and it was going to be a wonderful glorious thing uh, mm-hmm. the door was going to glow and you're going to walk on rainbows it was going to be an amazing thing but then reality sets in and we realize wait a minute we went to design school we don't know anything about business we don't know anything about marketing sales how to ask for the sale how to do a bid and all those kinds of things start to set in. Cheryl, you're actually, shaking your head. I, actually, I never, I was aware of that when I was in school. So I never actually wanted to necessarily start my own business. Right. I was aware I was not a, good at sales. I was very introverted. I was like, oh my gosh, if I did this entrepreneur thing, I would be, I have to do the hustle and I'm not, I'm not good at that. I'm not a social networking person. That's not my five lane highway. So I actually. How many lanes are on that highway, by the way? I'd be like. So Matthew, I, I want to ask you this question. So born wasn't what it was meant to be mm-hmm. and the market wasn't cooperating so things mm-hmm. are starting to fall apart mm-hmm. i think you have to make some decisions at this point mm-hmm. and so take me through your mindset do you, are you and, and a lot of people feel this way even though things aren't working out mm-hmm. they don't want to quit yes we're not a nation of quitters right no we just don't want to quit and so take me through your mindset a little bit yeah so i mean 2008 things started to get tough uh, luckily i had a, a couple of people uh, in the business with me so there was a good support there but at the same time there was also an obligation to those other people right because I had I felt like I had to make sure that we're still getting work in so that all the mouths are fed and it wasn't only my responsibility it was everybody's responsibility how many were you we made the mistake of starting with six people Woo! six w- people yeah oh my goodness <laughs> to further complicate things and make us feel more like we didn't know anything about business. And I think I, I called you around that time, around 2007. I was like, so hey, we're going to make it legit. We're going to start our company. Can you give me any advice? And you, I think that was what I said. You, you said, so like, how many people are you guys going to start with? Oh, there's six of us, six partners. And you're like, dude, you got to cut some people. That was the <laughs> first thing you told me. And I was like, I can't cut anybody. Like all of these people have helped me build the company. So we, we decided to, to keep it together. Now, you're going to make everybody think, like, Chris is a butcher. He comes in, he's like, I don't know, just start taking out the cleaver and cut, cut, cut. Well, one thing I can say is at least I'm consistent. Right. You know, it's like I said it many years ago, and I'm still saying it today. Don't set yourself up for failure. Right. The way you set yourself up for failure is you are shortening your runway. You guys understand what that means, shortening your runway? Mm-hmm. If you look at what your burn rate is, how much money it takes to keep your operation going every single month, and you look at the jobs coming in, the amount of money you have saved up, or outstanding invoices, that determines your runway. And you want the runway to be as long as possible, so you're not sweating bullets every day thinking, today I might not be able to pay the electrical bill. The simple things. So starting out with six partners is just managing a six-headed beast to begin yeah. with. Personalities, yeah. finances, it becomes very complicated. Yeah. So, yeah, we're going through that process and trying to figure out, okay, well, how do we survive? We're still getting jobs. We're still starting to ask around, but things were definitely drying up. And yet we held on to it for another year and a half into 2009. And I think the reason we did is because we felt like we had an obligation to each other, but also there were so many people supporting us right out of, out of college, out of Art Center. So all of our friends, all the people we graduated, they all held us in really high regard because it's like oh my gosh you guys are the all-stars coming out of art centers you guys are the best so it's part of my ego you're the justice league <laughs> that's right that's right you're just wondering am i batman or superman right okay fine maybe i'm just alfred and i'm just cleaning up in, in the in the bad cave i don't know no you're the wonder twins <laughs> uh, but yeah i mean so there was a lot on the line uh, a lot of things in my ego and personality and feelings that you know i felt obligated to so eventually everybody's kind of morale broke down in the company and we kind of felt like it was time to just how did you see that how did that manifest itself less money in the bank no no i mean like in terms of the morale like how do you know so if you're in an office and you're you've started a company with friends how do you know that aaron is feeling like this ain't working how do you know that cheryl's feeling that 
How did you see that? How did it manifest itself? I mean, I think we were all fairly transparent about our feelings uh, and what we were thinking in the office. I, these guys that I started the business with, we were all very close in school. We already had done so many years of group projects together. So we're all very, very, very tight. And we knew when projects were not coming in because we would do fun projects or things like working on our reel. <laughs> so we knew it's like- I know what you're talking about. Yeah. You guys. You guys know what Matthew's talking about? Oh, yeah, it's called near the end. Busy work. It's busy <laughs> They're work. doing busy work. That's right. Busy, busy work. Instead of getting busy work, right. you got to go do some biz dev. Okay. So we already we already knew it was... it was The beginning of the end. Beginning of the end. And at some point, we all just realized, like, look, guys, I don't have any money in the bank. The company doesn't have any money in the bank anymore. And we all got to eat. So we just Ooh, dark times now. Dark times. And, and how did that make you feel? It made me feel... It made me feel really low, like I was a failure. Like I did all this stuff, like puffing myself up, and 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 I, mentally, it, it cut me down. It cut me in half. Like I thought I was way up here, and then the market told me I was way down here. So this is uh, what Robert McKee would talk about when subjective expectation meets cold hard reality. Mm -hmm. You had this expectation of. The jobs are going to come in. We're going to work with Nike. We're going to be on top of the world. Every we're going to be the toast of the town. They're going to create a plaque at Art Center just for you guys. <laughs> the fantastic, the Sinister Six. It's going to be amazing. <laughs> Girls are going to throw themselves at you. It's going to be a wonderful, glorious thing. You you graduated, uh, cocksure, super confident, coming out, and then all of a sudden it's like somebody just punched you in the gut, mm -hmm. and now you're feeling and having to deal with reality. So. I think for a lot of people who might be listening either on Facebook Live or on this podcast, you know, if you felt that way, just know that there's a way out. The key to all this stuff is not to stay in that dark pit. You got to climb yourself back out of the hole. And since we already started geeking out about comics and things like that, that's like the Dark Knight Rises, right? <laughs> right. He climbs out of the Lazarus pit right. and he falls time and time again, but he never gives up. Mm -hmm. He's able to get himself out of the pit and then become a superhero again and so that's the thing so be careful not to wallow in your own self-pity and just it, it can be very demoralizing mm -hmm. so one tip I'm gonna give people here is this to think about this is I think if there are a hundred possible feelings you can have don't spend the nine uh, your time looking for the 99 ways it makes you feel bad I look for the one way it makes me feel great right so even in the brink of total failure and despair everybody we're gonna have to break up it's like well I had a great experience learning what not to do. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I had a wonderful time with you five, my, my five best buddies from school. Mm -hmm. We gave it a go and this was a great time. Are you still friends? Oh yeah, I'm okay. friends with all of them. We all went our own ways. Everybody had their own path doing different things, but yeah, we're all still really good friends. It's, good. It wasn't That's one of those sign. bad business was, breakups. That was a good breakup if you're <laughs> yeah. still talking. No, yeah. it was really good. We we all returned back to the freelance pool. Luckily, there was still a lot of studios that had survived at the time. And our skills, even though we we're only doing it for, for two years, like we, uh, we still had good portfolios. So we could still plug and play right back into the freelance market working at different studios. So. Okay. So. Well, let me let, let's take it back. Let's let's okay. find some focus here and ground this conversation. Mm -hmm. Really, I'm thinking about all the people who are either thinking about going to college or who are just graduated, and they have this very real concern: this pang, like, what am I going to do with my career? How am I going to get a, a job? What path should I take? Should I become a freelancer? Should I go work for some place? Maybe from your perspective, Matt, because I didn't really work for anybody for a very long time. Mm -hmm. You can share some of the pros and cons. Okay. Now, before we do that, I want to give the people who are tuning in on Facebook Live right now an opportunity to ask some questions. And so, you guys, I'm going to prompt you right now. Ask a few questions, and I'll read them, and we'll kind of filter them through the show. And I'll do that a couple of points, especially at the end. We'll do some Q&A for you guys, okay? All right, go ahead. Talk about the pros and cons. Okay, pros and cons. So, like I said, after I finished, we closed shop, and I went back to the freelance pool for a couple of years. I felt so much relief, right? The business was off my shoulders. I didn't have to worry about anything. All I had to do is go uh, be high, as a high, work at a different studios as a hired gun. They'd pay me a good amount of money, and then I can kind of control my, my my destiny from there. So I was, I felt a lot of relief. It was it was a really big contrast from me having all the responsibilities of running a business to just making the work. So what was really good for me working at these studios is that I was just doing the fun, creative part. 
You know, I was being hired. The part you trained to do. Exactly. The, the thing that I was trained to do. In You're school. in your wheelhouse then. Mm -hmm. So I was designing, learned a lot about animation and you work know, with I, a lot of really talented people, learn about their process. Mm -hmm. So being shoulder to shoulder to people who you used to look up to, maybe your former teachers, all that kind of stuff, mm -hmm. you get to soak it all in. That's yeah. a great thing about being freelance, right? Yeah, yeah, that was that was the best part. And I think maybe it was just part of my inherent personality, but I was very genuinely curious with all the people that I worked with. So like you said, I was shoulder to shoulder with some of these very, very talented people, and I would always be curious about what they're doing. So I see that guy next to me is doing some crazy thing in Cinema 4D, some some crazy MoGraph thing. And I'd look over and I'd be genuinely curious, like, how, how did you do that? How I don't understand what you just did. Like, how did you make it look that way? And then he would just go through this process of showing me. And I think the reason being is like when anyone ever shows interest in you, you're, you feel so obliged, like, oh, you're interested in what I'm doing? Let me show you, let me show you. So that was my personality and that was my approach whenever I went to these different studios. I worked with a lot of different people and I learned a lot of information by, by having that approach to people. So that sounds like a, uh, a quick tip for you guys. Um, if you're working next to somebody that you really look up to and admire, it could be kind of intimidating to look over and ask for help. But what Matthew is saying, a lot of people are really receptive to this. Not everybody, obviously, but a lot of people are really receptive. And if you just approach it in a genuine fashion and say, wow, that's really cool. Would you mind just telling me how you did that? That just blows my mind. I don't even know how you did that. And then on the flip side, if you're one of those guys who's got a lot of experience and knows a lot of tricks, don't be an information hoarder. Our industry moves forward by you sharing information and you passing it along, mentoring some young buck that's coming up mm -hmm. because somewhere along the way, somebody helped you. So it doesn't make sense. There's enough work to go around and to be open and sharing. Now, having said that, I'll admit to you, I did not do that. My, my ego was just too big. I, I remember a guy who came in, I think his name was Matt, and he was a compositor, and he had worked on Sky Captain something tomorrow, right? Mm -hmm. And I watched how he comped these shots. We were doing a job for Fox for Major League Baseball, I think it was. And he did such an amazing process of comping things. So luckily, because I'm the owner of the company, when he went home, I just opened the files and I looked at it. <laughs> and I did this often. I would look at somebody's Photoshop file, somebody's Illustrator file, and just see, like, how did they do this? Because I wasn't confident enough in myself or whatever it is. I don't know what the reasons were. Too egotistical just to ask the person. I could justify it a thousand different ways, but not going to. But I went into his files, and it was a total mystery and just unraveling. I'm like, oh, my God. The way he did that? was the simplest, cleanest way of doing it with the fewest number of steps that gave the best result. And to this day, I still teach people how to do this trick about how to composite things into the background and get it to make it look real, to sell the comp. So get over yourself, approach somebody. And now that I'm older, more mature, thank you, Matthew, for pointing that out. <laughs> I, I feel much more confident into, in terms of who I am. And, and confidence is just me accepting who I am in my own faults and, and strengths, right? So yeah. I'm okay with that. But yeah. what you talked about, Matt, what wasn't so much about freelance, it's just working anywhere. You're gonna get that opportunity. Yep. Let's really be very laser focused here. Okay. What are the pros, in your opinion, and the cons of working as a freelancer? Right, so I think the best thing about freelancing is just the freedom. Assuming that you're getting a consistent flow of work when you ask for it, the best thing about freelancing is the freedom. And I think, again, it comes from that contrast from owning my own business. Now I can kind of control when I worked, where I worked, and how I worked. So I can kind of define a few things like what my rate is, what hours I worked, if I get overtime, like all, all these things. I felt like I got so much control on that end, but also I had the control to work on the types of projects that I wanted to. So if I was at a shop or studio for a little bit and then they start putting me on some lame work, then usually I'll say, oh guys, you know, this is not really my thing. I'm moving on to the next shop. So I had a lot of flexibility and freedom to just basically control my destiny for a bit. Okay, so just to clarify a little bit here, you're, as a freelancer, you're able to control things to a degree and how you control them is by either accepting or not accepting a booking. Right. So if you don't like working in a shop because you don't feel like it's the right vibe, a good culture fit, or they put you on um, you know, 10 dog food commercials in a row, 
that might be, not be somewhere where you want to stay very long. So you, you wrap up your booking, you're very professional about it, mm-hmm. and you wrap up and you move on. Mm-hmm. That's very different than being on staff because you've signed on to be on for a long time. Mm-hmm. And so whatever job they give you, you're kind of more or less obligated to do it and to do it to the best of your ability with a smile on your face. Right. What other pros and cons do you have? I think another really big pro was I felt like I got the sample platter for uh, different studio cultures. So I know being in my own shop, like there was a particular studio culture there. Interning at Blind, there was a particular studio culture there. When I would go to any of these other shops, I can kind of see how other people worked, what the hours were like, and what worked and what didn't work as far as the studio culture goes and chemistry. So that was really good for me to kind of understand um, and just understand what I like, what where I fit. So there was a couple of shops, shops where I would go back often because I really liked working there, one of them being blind. And then, you know, some other shops I would probably leave in two weeks just because it's like, you know, it's not really fun here. Why wasn't it fun there? It was mostly, mostly from the people that worked there. The places where I ended up staying the longest were the places where either my peers from Art Center or from other places I met were working there. So I would be sitting down right next to my friends. We'd be joking all day, but still doing really cool projects, even if it was sometimes still 3 a.m. in the morning. So can you quantify that a little bit more? I think I know what it is, but mm-hmm. are you able to describe that kind of more granularly? Like what that is? Because you said it's people, but some young person's gonna be listening to this like, what do you mean people? Every shop's got people. Right. What, what is it about these people? I think it was people that I related to. Like I said, it was a lot of people that went to Art Center, so they already shared the same beliefs and values and experiences that that I did in the past. We could joke about teachers or school, um, but then also we could relate and share our war stories um, from the other shops that we worked at. So it was already people that I had uh, a previous relationship with and people I could get along with. Okay. That wasn't always the case. You know, I would go to shops and I would meet new people and just out of my curiosity or friendliness, I would make new friends. and. You know, then I would develop that uh, kind of repertoire with them and relationship. So it sounds to me like if you went to school with them, that's a natural fit. Yeah. But let's just say that they're all strangers. So mm-hmm. maybe one of the things that you gravitate towards are uh, an environment where people seem to be more inclusive, not standoffish. Mm-hmm. Now everybody's got their headphones on and just looking at their screen and mm-hmm. not really creating an opening for there to be any real interaction. Right. So the work was important to you, but the people that you work next to, and we often talk about as culture, mm-hmm. mattered just as much, if not more. Yes. People who inspired you, who, whose work you looked up to, who who helped you to grow. Mm-hmm. So somebody, and, and they could be inclusive and they're all great, but if you're not really challenged and you don't feel like you're learning, you're already the best person when you start, that's easy for you, but you start to feel like you're gonna stagnate. You right. wanna be inspired by people, right. right? Yeah, and I think the other thing too is, it's it's the level of friendliness, like you said. In a o- very open culture, if it's my first day, usually the person or people around next to me would invite me to lunch. The environments where it was like really closed or corporate, Everyone would just be focused on their work till 12 or 1, and then they would get up and then go to lunch, but no one would ever talk to each other. Mm-hmm. So those are the places that I didn't enjoy. Okay. We got some questions? Yeah, let's take this moment and start to hit some of the questions. So Benjamin Eng, who was a former intern here, full disclosure, he asked, what advice would you give to yourself if you could turn back time when you're still doing the business? Is he talking to me or is he talking to you? I don't know. Let's, let's do it with you because yeah. I've told my story plenty of times. So let's go yeah. back to you. Yeah. So Ben, uh, Benjamin, great to, to have you on here. So if, if I were to go back in time, knowing what I knew now, I would probably study a lot more business. I think that was the, the biggest hole that I didn't have when I was younger. Like I knew all the creative stuff. I knew how to execute. I didn't know how to run a business. So even today, now I'm trying to learn all the like business terms, how business works. I I find that it's very useful to me and in my career today. I wish I had learned that 10 years ago when I tried to open my own shop. So just learning how to run a business, trying to get my own personal MBA through through books and people like Gary Vee and other uh, social media guys, uh, that's what I would do very differently. Well, let me ask you a more pointed question. Mm -hmm. Would you not start with six people? Yes, I, I think that would be a very tough decision for me, but I would probably, if I had a chance to lecture myself in the past, like, here's why you shouldn't do it with six people, uh, I probably would do that differently. If I was very serious, 
about um, running my own business. Okay, I'm gonna put you on the hot spot. Yeah. That's why it's called the hot seat, right? All You're right. in the hot seat today. I want you to pretend if you could go back in time mm -hmm. and talk to this strong-willed, confident, cocksure Matthew and Cena, who's mm -hmm. many, many years younger, mm -hmm. what would you tell that person that would convince that person not to go into business with six people? Because I obviously was not effective when I told you don't do it. <laughs> I would probably tell myself. Tell yourself right now. Matthew, uh, 2008 is not going to be a great year. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> no, you can't do that. Because then you would say, pull all your money out of the market, wait for that bottom of the market and reinvest and you're going to be a billionaire. Forget about this design stuff. Right. You right. can't do that. I'm just saying, how do you specifically focus on the six person thing? The six person thing. Yeah. It's like, Matthew, six people are a lot of mouths to feed. That's going to be really, really tough. I know you guys might be getting jobs here and there, but there's going to be months where it's going to be a lot of famine. And those months are really going to test yourself. They're going to test your friendship. And it's going to make things very, very tense. It's going to do the opposite of what you're trying to accomplish um, by running your own studio, building your own culture. It's going to really test and stress those things. So I highly suggest not going into business with six people. Try and minimize it how, and, and really think about what you're trying to accomplish and take baby steps towards that. What is the ideal number? Like two? That's a really good question. What is the ideal number? Because partnerships are hard, as too. Yeah. few people as possible. Yeah. Now, what Matthew said, I swear, it sounds like what I told him. But <laughs> <laughs> So maybe it's just uh, you're, you're one of those types of people. you got to experience it, and you got to feel the pain. That's right. But this reminds me of a conversation we had with Cho from Higher Wire, how he had set really high goals for himself. And when he didn't hit it, uh, do you remember, Aaron, what it was? It was like $2 million. Yeah, it sounded like when he said he failed, I was like, dude, that sounds pretty great. Wait, wait, but let's give everybody some context who doesn't know what we're talking about. I think his first year out, he had set a goal of hitting $2 million in sales. And they came back and they got 1.5. And he was totally depressed. He says, I'm a total failure. I said, what are you talking about? First year out of starting your own company, you gross out $1.5 million out of zero? I would be celebrating. Pop the champagne. This is about setting unrealistic expectations on yourself and creating unnecessary pressure. That's what we're talking about here. So when you teamed up with all those guys from Born, that's what you did. Yep. You created too much pressure for it to work. Yep. All right. So let's get to our next question here. So Mario Ronci had a is asking, is there a gap in education between what they teach you and what you need to know in the real world? You guys know my answer to that. That's like he's baiting me right now. So I'm not gonna answer that. I'm gonna flip it over to Matthew. Yeah, I, I mean, there's definitely uh, a gap, but I mean, it's challenging. In school, you only have so much time, whether that's three or four years or more, if you decide to go into it. You know, I went to Art Center because I wanted to master my craft. I wanted to become really good at design and learn how to execute like the best, right? So that was my goal going in there. There was a lot of things that I, I didn't know that I needed to know to run my business and to just become a, a really effective person out there. And that's really in the realm of, of soft skills. And that's learning how to negotiate, how to communicate, how to direct and manage your time, other people's time. Uh, all of this is uh, soft skills, which is the opposite of what I went to school for. Okay, so I can't help myself. I have to jump in here. But Cheryl, <laughs> did you want to say something? You're oh, motioning. Oh, no, like no, no. I, well, basically, going back to what I, I mentioned earlier, I was completely aware of my, that my soft skills, you know, in terms of, you know, people, relationships weren't the best either. But, you know, going into corporation also has, you know, its pros and cons. Um, like the variety you got when you're freelancing, you do not get that in a corporation. Um, that's a con. Yeah, that's a con. Before we jump into the cons, though, <laughs> let me just focus back on the education part and then okay. uh, we'll, we'll go right back into the cons because Matthew's painting a pretty rosy picture of what it's like to be a freelancer. Yeah. Right? <laughs> it's like, it's wonderful, Whoa. guys. It's great. You poop I Skittles. It's a wonderful <laughs> world. It's, right. it's an awesome place. Here's my thing. I, I think, and at the risk of offending lots of people, here goes. The risk of offending a lot of people, I think design schools are kind of taught in a way that hasn't evolved or changed very much from the last 50 or 60 years. I'm speaking specifically about design schools. We're still talking about the art and the craft of making things. Now, I'm not going to say bricklayer. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> but I think it would behoove ed um, the educational institutions that want to be at the very top and le do lead, lead the group 
to have designers to be thinking about how to solve problems, not design, graphic design problems, not, not to solve motion design problems, but just to solve problems. It could be a business problem, it could be a marketing problem, mm -hmm. a communication problem, but be a designer, a, biz, a business designer, mm -hmm. and use all those wonderful skills about how to make something, how to craft something, but apply it to a bigger purpose. So many of us celebrate and give ourselves adulation for designing the most intricate, cool thing. But at the end of the day, we, we don't really have any real connection to how it impacts the business mm -hmm. on any real way. Mm -hmm. Now, most designers are gonna find this a little abrasive, what I'm gonna say, but it's, they're gonna say, well, Chris, making a beautiful thing transforms the company. And to an extent, I agree. But if the guts inside that thing are spoiled or rotten, it doesn't make a difference at all. It's mm -hmm. like putting a really nice wrapper on something that's horrible, okay? Mm -hmm. So that can only get you so far. So that requires a total re-engineering of the curriculum, the faculty, and the way it's taught. We, we've talked about this too much before, I'm not gonna go into it now, but mm -hmm. that's my feeling. So it's gotta be a much bigger thing that we're gonna work on together. Yeah, yeah, and I, I think part of the conversation is switching what you're talking about from colors and fonts into the bottom lines and profits. I feel like just by learning a little bit about business on my end based off of the clients that we've had recently, I feel like the conversations are so different and more meaningful and impactful. Where back in the day when I was freelancing or, or doing stuff in school, it was all about the craft, which only mattered to other designers. It didn't matter to anybody else. So uh, it, it, it's, it took me a long while to get there, but I wish I had learned it sooner. Okay, so we, we got a couple of questions piling up here right now. So let's get into the cons and then we'll go right back into the questions, okay? So what are the cons of being a freelancer? I'll start and we'll, we'll just be game like hot potato. Everybody, <laughs> you guys are on your toes. Aaron, I'm gonna pass it to you next. We're gonna go around in a circle here and we'll see what happens. The first con of being a freelancer, and I hear this a lot, is God, I, I hate being a freelancer because I don't get enough work. It's so inconsistent and it stresses me out. While I'm on a job, it's fine. But when I know my booking's ending, the anxiety, that feeling, like I, I, I want more stability than that. Mm -hmm. um, you don't get the benefits, the 401k, the, um, you know, the health benefits. You got sick. It's true. You know? Health insurance, like, uh -huh. vacation, mm -hmm. sick days, personal days. If you don't work, you don't make any money as a freelancer. It's the bottom line, mm -hmm. right? True. Okay, Matthew, I, I finish think it. The, the toughest thing for me, being a freelancer, the worst con, was I felt like I was moving horizontally in my career. I would go from job to job, doing the same thing, just being the gun for hire to execute. I felt like I didn't have any real impact on the projects that I was working on because I didn't have the opportunity to do a whole lot of thinking. Like I could refine, but it was already at the end after all the decisions have already been made. So for me, after a couple of years of freelancing, I felt like, am I really challenging myself? I'm just doing the same thing over and over and over again at different shops. Okay, what else? Um, I think the, the consistency thing. Luckily for me, that wasn't really an issue. I had, a lot of, I had a really good tight network that always referred me, so I didn't have any issues with um, consistent bookings. Well, here's another thing. I'll say this from the business owner perspective, is if I have a freelancer, they are a mercenary, a merc. Okay? I pay you to do something, you're amazing, you're great, but as soon as I don't have work, I have to stop booking you. That's the end of it. So how you manage your time really is important to me because I'm paying for something. Otherwise, I start thinking, why am I paying this person again? So am I going to bring Matthew the freelancer with me to a client meeting? Probably not. Am I going to bring Matthew to a shoot that he's not involved in just because I want to show him the ropes? So one thing that you do get as being part of staff is to get more involved, to have a kind of a deeper relationship with the inner workings of the company. I talked to a young woman earlier today. I said, when you, when you go and find your new job, former student of mine, make sure you, you ask the person who's interviewing you, can I become more involved in the business aspects of what you're doing? I'd like to contribute in that arena. Can I go on some of the sales calls? Can I do some of the client meetings? I wanna get involved. Because ultimately that's gonna make you more valuable because now you understand what's really impacting the business. Mm -hmm. And Matthew was talking about moving horizontally. It's hard to become a freelance art director. It's hard to become a freelance creative director. Those things tend to get promoted in-house, internally. People mm -hmm. move vertically within the company. Mm -hmm. And so that's gonna segue into this question, right? The question is for Matthew is, what three things do you think make for a great creative director? 
Let me boom. Boom. Let me bring that up. I think the biggest thing is uh, being able to articulate your ideas and direct somebody to do that. I know when uh, I was first brought here as a creative director, I was not great at that because I was coming, shifting my mind still from being the maker, the person doing the thing on the box, to the person telling somebody else what to do and trying to get them to make exactly what was in my head. So it took me a long time to kind of translate what was in my head into words, into something that somebody else could execute. Where early on, I think for me, it was a little frustrating. So if I'm trying to tell somebody to do something and it's not quite getting there because I don't have the words or the way to express that, I would just say, can you move aside and then let me just do it, let me show you. And then I would just make it. And it's like, oh, see, like that, that's all I was thinking. Why couldn't you do that? But for me, that was that was the hardest thing. Now I feel quite comfortable in, in my language and, and how I need to talk to people and direct people so that I don't really have to worry. I could say something at the beginning of the day, put together a creative brief that they can understand and I can come in at the end of the day and see what they've made. And most of the time, it's more or less like 90% what was in my head. Mm. So that was that was one thing. That's I think one. That's, that's one thing. <laughs> Two more to go. <laughs> I think the, the next biggest thing is just having a good uh, temperament because people will challenge you all around from the, the client side because as a creative director, you're client facing, meaning you have to take these calls, uh, understand their problems, and then come back a few days later and present some solutions. And you kind of keep going through that cycle until you reach the end of the project. Sometimes the clients will challenge you because they get angry for some reason or, you know, some, sometimes it wasn't to their expectations and then they blow up on you. So the worst thing you could do is be angry right back at them because then it just creates so much friction. I think one thing that has been pretty good about my temperament, at least, is, is to kind of understand what the problem is and try and meet them somewhere and try and negotiate. Like, what is, what is the real problem here? Because if I can understand that, then I know exactly where we can go. And, you know, I'll take it upon myself to make sure that uh, I can push the team to get there. And then on the other side, you know, sometimes uh, working with freelancers or certain people, you know, sometimes they'll have an, an attitude, like they don't really want to do something. And part of my job is trying to relieve that friction and trying to get them to still execute what I want them to execute, but do it in a way that makes them, uh, that keeps everything calm and happy here. Because sometimes some people's like, oh, I got to be somewhere right at seven o'clock. I can't believe you're giving me these notes at six o'clock. And it's like, well, you know, it's not, it's not up to me. It's like something that the client had brought up and I'm not trying to throw you under the bus. Here's what I understand the goal is. I, I, I would like to accomplish these few things before end of day. If you can't do that, let me know because then, you know, I'll take it upon myself. I'll just do it. It's not your fault. And usually just being very understanding of their position Usually like, oh, you know, I, I get it. You know, they, they, they kind of empathize with me because they see what I've gone through and then and then they just do it, even if they're a little late to their engagement. So part, part of what you're saying is, as a good creative director, you're kind of playing amateur psychologist. You have to know what motivates people. And part of that is having some empathy, mm-hmm. being a great leader and being very respectful. That's what I heard. Mm-hmm. And if you, if you listen to Simon Sinek, who I'm a big fan of, mm-hmm. his whole thing is great leaders eat last. They sacrifice themselves first for the good of the team. That's a great leader because everybody can be a boss, but not everybody's a great leader. And so that's what he's talking about. He's like, you know what? I totally understand. You have plans. I'll take this. I got it. It's not your problem. And that's usually when they're like, well, that's inspirational. When's the last time you had a creative director say that to you? So Isaiah is asking this question. He said, you know, partnerships are hard to come by and they're difficult to manage. How do you find high quality help when you need it? Like in freelancers, like bringing on people on board? I mean, a lot of, a lot of what we do uh, here is, uh, the people that I bring in here is usually from word of mouth. I usually try and bring people I've already worked with or somebody else recommends. It takes a long time for me to bring in an outside party, which I have no connection to. So for me, usually it's by through relationship. So if let's say all of my first picks that I always go to are, are already booked up, I ask those people, it's like, hey, do you, do you know somebody who does what you do? Do you know somebody that does concept art like you do or uh, is really good at 3D character animation? And then usually they'll have recommends. I'll reach out to those people. And sometimes like one of them will, will bite. Some, one of them is free. I bring them in and then they become part of my network. So a lot of it is starting really close from the people that I know. And then just 
gradually expanding out. So um, there have been opportunities where it's like everybody in town that I know is booked and we have to take a chance. And those don't always pan out well. Like I've had experiences where I brought in a freelancer that I had no connection to and it didn't work out. He just wasn't up to snuff. Even though his portfolio looked great, just like his working uh, attitude and everything, it was just did not fit here. Use words to describe that. Uh, what do you mean his attitude didn't fit? Like at the beginning of the day, I would give him a brief, like I'm trying to explain the project to him. And he'd be like, mm-hmm, yep, yep, yep. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Before I could even finish my thought, like he, he already assumes like he knows what it is. How did that make you feel? It made me feel like he wasn't listening. It made me second guess, like why did I bring this guy? Because I know I'm predicting right now. It's a little confirmation bias that he's not listening right now. So at the end of the day, I'm not gonna have what I need and I have to redo the work myself. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna be stressed out about it. Was that. that confirmed? It was confirmed. All right, there's a tip for you guys right there. I'm gonna go a little broader on that answer or to, the, to that question, which is, I think there's an expression, something like you are two calls away from getting the job that you want or finding the person that you need. So if you just look within the pool of people you know, it's a fairly limited pool. But each person you know in that circle knows a lot more people and then that the radius or the diameter of that circle becomes really large. What Matthew was saying is, ask people that you're already working with, who do you like, who do you know? Mm-hmm. Now, I think your answer is very specific to motion designers mm-hmm. and I wanna give a broader answer. Mm-hmm. If you're working or you're thinking about starting your own company, the time to build your network isn't the day you decide to build your business, but it's days and years before you build your business. Mm-hmm. It's time to get to know who people are. Uh, most of the time people ask, well, aren't you working on projects, Chris? Aren't you painting frames in Photoshop? And I am, you know, of course not. I can't do that. What I'm trying to do is constantly update our database, look at people, uh, people's work, their portfolio online or in, in real life, so that I can have a catalog of all these wonderful, talented people who are out there. And over the years, that list has grown really deep. So I know what I want, and I know that there is a specialist that exists out there in my network already, when that need arises, we can call upon them. But it's time to get really resourceful. I'll give you an example right now. This is happening in real time. We're designing a fishing guide for Oli's, and we want to find an illustrator who does a very specific style. It's very retro, the kind you would find in the back of a Sears robot catalog or in the back of a comic book in the advertising section. And so that's kind of an old school throwback style. So what we do is we research. I remember seeing some things in Popular Mechanics, some really cool survival guides, and that's the kind of vibe I wanted, like an old Boy Scouts, Cub Scout kind of style. Mm-hmm. So I hunted down the illustrator, tried to contact them, and they weren't available. So then I gave that example to my designers who then searched and searched, and then they found three acceptable people. We got them to bid. I liked the one style the best, and it was the closest. They were also the most expensive, but it was the closest style that I wanted and they're doing an amazing job for us. So be really resourceful, call the people in your network, and be building up the database as you go every single day because you're, you're, not, you're not sure when you're going to need that mm-hmm. person who's going to do a, a rig for a character right? or a subsurface scattering expert for that, that look that you're trying to go after. Right. Okay? And I think uh, just to add on top of that, there was another project that just came to mind as you were talking. Uh, we were doing a title design for uh, some Netflix show a couple years ago, and I needed somebody who was really good at doing uh, hand-drawn typography. And I was already a fan of that stuff. People, I mean, I, I personally like watching people make that stuff hand-done. It just has a certain quality to it. And I was already following all these people on my Instagram. So when that job came along and I needed, I had that need, I just reached out directly through Instagram, <laughs> just messaged them in their box and said like, hey, I've been looking at your work for years. Uh, are you available for this type of project? And I reached out to maybe 10 of them and then one of them I actually brought on board. So it, it's amazing that something like that where I'm in that arena just as a fan looking at their work that I could reach out to them and actually bring them on board to, to do work for me. Yeah, I just want to mention this like Gabrielle is saying, she thinks schools need to teach life skills, how to deal with challenges, and finding your true self, your confidence, how to build up your confidence. Mm-hmm. That would be an amazing school to go to, I wanna say. So <laughs> that, that school exists in a fairyland somewhere, but it's a wonderful ideal to try to achieve. Let's keep going with some questions here. So John wants to know, Matt, do you have a reading list 
give us your reading list. Oh. Oh. <laughs> so there's a bunch of regular podcasts and books that I've read and reread. Uh, I actually linked them all already on my website, so we could add that in the show notes. But and I could comment here, but it's on my website, matthewincina.com slash resources. I've already kind of compiled all the books that I've found that have been very beneficial to me, whether that's as an artist, as a creative director. And I've also added links in there. So people I listen to regularly for podcasts. Um, I really like listening to Gary Vee. He has that really brash kind of attitude. It's just like, just do it, just do it, work really hard. And I, I love listening to him for that reason. I also like somebody like Tim Ferriss. Even though he's a little long-winded sometimes, I just like the way he breaks down different verticals, like different people who work in different verticals um, and just understanding their daily rituals. Because even though it's like a two-hour session sometimes, I'll get like one or two nuggets that are very, very impactful for me for how I could, uh, what I could apply to my uh, daily life. So there's a lot of podcasts that I, I do. Like my commute each way is about 30 minutes, so I get to listen to one or two podcasts each way. And I, I really maximize that time to just sit there and absorb the information. He asked for a book list, dude. Book list. Stop sorry. evading the question. I'm sorry. Uh, book list. Uh, Leaders Eat Last. That was a great one. I saw Simon uh, Sinek speak last month, and it was amazing. It's helped me kind of craft uh, my thoughts around what my role is as a leader. Am I fulfilling those roles? So Leaders Eat Last, I thought it was going to be a how-to management book, but I was pleasantly surprised when I read it because it was really all the biological and social reasons why certain organizations are great to be at and why other ones fail. So that was highly impactful for me. Um, I think uh, Zag by Marty Neumeier, that's a great one. I know we've read that a couple of years ago and I've reread that a couple times. Uh, just just understanding what a brand is today. Highly influential. And the last book that I would say is probably one of the most impactful for me recently is The Win Without Winning. Uh, Win Without Win Pitching. Win Without Pitching Manifesto. Yeah, Chris turned me on to that maybe two years ago or three years ago and I've reread it a couple times and it's really hard to practice and retool your brain, but just learning how to change your perspective on what it is you do as a professional designer, as a professional animator, um, it really retooled my brain because I spent the last 10 or so years pitching and now trying to get out of that and un learning confidence and understanding the value of what I bring when I uh, engage with a client that was a very, very impactful book for me. Great. I'm not going to let us go on a book list without mentioning Delivering Happiness by Tony Shea, the founder of Zappos. That book is life-changing. It changed my life, and it's impacted the lives of people that work here. And we can't, talk, we can't talk about a book list without talking about that. Now, notice how we're not talking about the typography annual number 27. <laughs> <laughs> you understand what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So these are leadership, mindset, self-awareness books, management, all those kinds of things. These are kinds of things that I think would be very beneficial to somebody that's going to school right now just to either watch these videos or read these books, be in front of these people. Many of them are still alive. I know Marty Neumeier does workshops. I've, I've spoken to him. Uh, we, we got to see Simon Sinek speak live, and that was a pretty awesome experience for everybody that had done that. Mm -hmm. Why don't we cap off this broadcast and this podcast with your list, since Matthew already gave it to us, your favorite podcast. I'll start with mine so that Aaron and Cheryl, you guys have a little bit of time, okay? I, I see eyebrows furrowing right now and shaking heads, but that's okay. So I'm gonna give you some of mine. I love uh, Invisibilia. They talk about how and why we behave the way we behave and beliefs that we have. Radio Lab, amazing, check them out. Moth Radio Hour, if you guys haven't, listen to the Moth Radio Hour, they invite a bunch of people to come up on stage and to tell their stories. Their whole tagline is something like, no slides, no script, just real stories. Mm -hmm. and, and these people are incredible storytellers. And I find that we often say like we're in the business of storytelling, but so few of us actually study story. Right. So I really listen to it, and there's a definite structure that works well. Mm -hmm. So if you aspire to give a TED Talk or a Moth Radio Hour talk, that's the way you do it. And the last one, I don't know if he still does it, but it's called Story by Dick Gordon. Dick Gordon is a, an amazing interviewer. He went off air, at least with uh, the radio station I was listening to for a little bit, so I don't know if he's retired or whatever, but he is, his podcasts are still available. It's called Story, Dick Gordon. He's amazing. Who's up next? I could, I could go. I wanted to toss one more in there that I've been listening to a lot recently. So aside from uh, Gary Vee, uh, uh, Timothy, 
Ferris. Ferris. Yeah, sorry, my brain's mush now. Uh, one that I've really liked recently is 99% Invisible. And what it is that every episode is different. They break down uh, something historical about like where the average sizes came from, from small, medium, large, and the history behind that. Because I love history. I'm a history buff. So when I learn about those things, um, it, it just gives me a new wrinkle in my brain, something new to talk about. And these actually come up. They're, they're great for small talk, actually, because I'll, I'll have random conversations and I'll bring up one of those topics. And it's great to just have that in the back of my mind. So 99% Invisible, that's a great podcast. Um, the other podcast that uh, I've really liked recently, and Greg Gunn turned me on to this, was uh, Startup. And the first season is just this guy who's trying to start up his own podcast company. So there's a lot of things that I related to in them because he was like this nervous, bumbling guy who doesn't know anything about business. He just knows how to make great podcasts. So he's talking to somebody like, um, who's the investor for, for Twitter with the beard cowboy hat? Chris Saka. Episode one, he's trying to pitch his business to Chris Saka and it is the most uncomfortable thing ever. It's like he doesn't realize like how big Chris Saka is but he's just blowing it and it's so uncomfortable. But the whole uh, first season is him building that business and the following seasons are just about other businesses. So that's great just for me to understand um, some of the, the perils that come with running a business because I could relate to a lot and also just seeing how other people have done it, uh, both succeeded and failed. You guys have any podcasts that we haven't already talked about, Cheryl? Um, no, actually. I. I can't think of any. <laughs> okay. So before we wrap up here, I want to give a shout out to Aaron Pearson. He's got a podcast called Branding Labs. It used to be Branding Like a Boss, but it's brand, Branding Labs. I believe that's what it's called. He's a, he's a really great guy. He's a guy who helped advise us on how to set this up, how to title our episodes and get up on the iTunes top whatever, 100. And he's been uh, a, a very valuable resource to us. So I cannot let this episode end. If we're going to talk about this, he's going to be scratching his head. Like, what up, guys? <laughs> yeah. I was going to say up? that. I was like, no, that's that's just too commercially. Chris will get mad. No, no, it's okay. And I just want to let everybody know that's tuning in on Facebook Live or if you're listening to this podcast and you're not aware, there's a whole other universe that exists. If you want more of this, we are on YouTube. If you go to youtube.com slash the future, you can find us there. We've got over 150 episodes on everything related to the business of design and the design of business. Well, I want to thank everybody for tuning in today and especially Matthew in the hot seat. Thanks for coming by, Matthew. Yeah, you're welcome. It's so fun to be here. Take it easy, guys. Bye. Thanks for tuning in and listening to us and spending a part of your day with me. Really appreciate it. And I want to talk a little bit about how we're able to do this. So the future is made possible by some of our lovely sponsors and partners, one of which is Pond5.com. If you guys need to get some stock footage, After Effects presets, Pond5 is the place to go. And the future is also made possible by Matthew Encina, Greg Gunn, Scott Rothstein, Nicole Wasserman, and the entire blind staff, which I would not be able to do fun stuff like this and spend the day with you without their support because they run the business for me. The man behind the scene, the man with the plan, Aaron Zakelli. He's responsible for recording this, engineering it, doing the sound design, the editing. He pretty much makes this podcast possible. You can find him online as well. And of course, I have to thank Adam Sanborn, the person who composed and wrote the piece of music that you're listening to. You can find him at adamsanborn.com. <laughs>